A lot of the people that hold Bitcoin today aren't selling at prices around 20K. Most Bitcoin is stuck in cold storage. It's not moving. It's If it's gonna move, the price is gonna have to go multiples or magnitudes higher. So it's gonna be really hard to get the 19 million Bitcoin out of the hands of the people that hold Bitcoin today. Okay, welcome back to the Coinbase podcast. Anyone who is a regular listener and watcher will notice I am joined with once again another familiar face, Joe Burnett. Welcome back to the Coinbase podcast. Thanks, Luke. I'm really thrilled that you joined, uh, Joe. The the listeners and the viewers demanded I get you back on, so I'm joined with you once again a couple of weeks after our original rip. Um, and there's a little bit of controversy in the Bitcoin space, and I thought you'd be the guy to ask about it because uh, in our previous discussion, we talked a lot about Bitcoin mining and block space demand in Bitcoin. We talked a lot about the fee market, but what we didn't talk about is the fact of uh, Taproot and what's going on with Bitcoin right now. So there's a lot of controversy on Bitcoin Twitter because there's a lot of uh NFT minters jamming monkey JPEGs onto the Bitcoin blockchain. And I thought, Joe, I wanted to ask you about that. What's your views on what's going on right now um, in the Bitcoin space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so like you said, right now, Taproot basically, or someone discovered that Taproot made it super easy to add additional data that's not normal transaction data uh, to the Bitcoin blockchain and add it in significant size, right? Like theoretically, the only limit to what you can add uh, in one of these tap root, uh, they're called like ordinals, um, is the block size limit. So that's the only like that's the only limitation for a transaction size is now block size limit, which with the SegWit, uh, the SegWit software back in 2017, it could be up to four megabytes of data. Uh, per block. And so generally speaking, you know, people are are kind of debating on like, okay, is this good for Bitcoin? Is it bad for Bitcoin? Um, generally, I, in my in my view, I think it's it's it is wasteful to, you know, put random JPEGs on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, but Bitcoin is this open permissionless network where if you're willing to spend the Bitcoins on the block space, and that's the you know, the best deal for miners to put it in. Miners are most likely going to include the transactions that are paying the highest fee rate for for that space. That's why when you send a Bitcoin transaction, you see it's like sat per virtual byte. So you're bidding, you know, per virtual byte that you're you're taking up in each block on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so when you add a JPEG, obviously that's going to be a lot of virtual bytes on the Bitcoin blockchain. And it's pretty wasteful. But if you're willing to pay the price to put it in there and you're outbidding other people that are bidding for block space, whether it's for transactions or other monkey JPEGs or whatever you want to put on there, um, you can do it now. And it's pretty pretty easy to do it now. But again, yeah, I think it's wasteful. Um, I discourage people to do it. But I think in the long run, it's probably not going to really matter. I think like the NFT idea if you want to build nfts maybe like go do it on ethereum um it's probably in the long run going to be cheaper there potentially um and there's really no point in doing it on bitcoin anyways uh and i think in a few months is probably everyone's going to probably forget about this and there's not going to be many nfts being minted on bitcoin and like i said like if you know bitcoin has a very strict you know block weight limit um and if if you know trend or if adoption starts to grow 
and the scaling solutions aren't, you know, perfect and fees actually do go up, which I probably expect uh, at some point, um, then, you know, people that are making these monkey JPEGs are going to be outcompeted by just people wanting to use Bitcoin to send Bitcoin. And I think that's kind of the inevitable outcome out of all of this. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. Uh, I, I don't get to, uh, I don't pay much attention to the whole JPEG uh, side of the the whole Bitcoin space. I kind of, you know, stay in my lane and try to ignore a lot of the noise. But uh, this, the noise seems to be permeating into Bitcoin Twitter. And now it's actually affecting Bitcoin and not only affecting it, but it's on Bitcoin. So it's pretty wild to watch JPEGs being minted on Bitcoin right now and all the debates popping up around it. Uh, while we're talking about monkey JPEGs and the, the carnage in crypto world, I want to ask you about a recent tweet you put out. I might bring it up on screen to show the listener, but I thought this was really, really interesting, the tweet you put out uh, recently, Joe. And I'm going to ask you the question that you posed in this tweet. Are we about to see the entire crypto industry exodus into Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean... Maybe it's wishful thinking, but I've thought this in the past and it didn't necessarily come true. Uh, personally, I think, you know, a large, large majority of the crypto space is just kind of absolute nonsense. It's, you know, people dumping tokens on retail investors, people confusing investing in technology for, or it's people confusing gambling for investing in, you know, groundbreaking quote unquote technology. When in reality, a lot of these scam tokens aren't really, you know, good for anything. Um, and so we we kind of saw I put these four points in this tweet where it's like, okay, Brian Armstrong, who's Coinbase CEO, he's tweeting about Bitcoin, which he normally doesn't, or he did, you know, many, many years ago when Bitcoin was the main attraction to retail investors um, and, you know, venture capital. Um Crypto kind of took over since 2017. Uh, it's been pretty popular since then. And he kind of stopped tweeting about it. And, and Coinbase is a casino, right? Like you have to remember their business model is trading between Bitcoin and dollars, Ethan dollars, and all of the altcoin games that they have at their casino. Imagine pulling up to a casino and you only seeing, I don't know, a poker table or whatever. You know, casinos do well when they have lots of games to play and, you know, Brian Armstrong is, has been in the past incentivized, you know, to, you know, build a lot of games on his platform. And that's kind of what we saw. But it's interesting that he stopped doing that. And maybe because there's going to be some sort of regulatory action against a lot of these cryptos that might be illegal security offerings. I don't know. Um, but we also see something like ETH, where we had the merge that occurred at the end of 2022. Everyone was saying that ETH is going to become ultrasound money. It's going to the moon after the merge. And then we've, you know, seen ETH uh, underperform Bitcoin since the merge fairly significantly. And it's not like it's been a couple of days at this point. I think it's been four or five months now. And, you know, what's the narrative for ETH now? If, if ETH became ultrasound money, the supply is flat or even I think it might even be decreasing on net since then. Uh, it's not going up. So they're kind of running out of narratives and people are going to, in my opinion, people are probably figuring out like, hey, it's not that the supply can go down necessarily. It's that the supply schedule is immutable, right? Like Apple stock, that supply has been going down for many, many years. Um, of course, it's done fairly well, but doesn't mean that Apple stock is ultrasound money. The, the valuable property of Bitcoin is that it's immutable. The supply schedule can't be changed. 
Whereas ETH, we've seen countless times that it can be changed. And that's why I think valuing ETH as money uh, is not a great idea. And I think that's why we've seen ETH underperform Bitcoin significantly since the merge, because people thought, hey, ETH is money. It's going to do well when it's defla- quote unquote deflationary. But they're figuring out, wait, you know, maybe our investment thesis around ETH is probably wrong. Yeah, that's a great point. And just to kind of go back on what you said about uh, Brian Armstrong and Coinbase, for anyone who knew listening into the podcast and uh, a lot of new people in the space might wonder why the Bitcoiners bash on Coinbase so much. And it's because of Brian Armstrong's disingenuous behavior that you brought up in that, you know, tweet. You know, he, he's a Bitcoiner many, many years ago, 2015, 2016. And all of a sudden when he started his casino, he just would not mention Bitcoin at all. He wouldn't, he wouldn't advertise Bitcoin. He wouldn't tweet about Bitcoin, hasn't tweeted about it in years. And it's really uh, coincidental that he just starts tweeting about it recently. So uh, for anyone who's wondering why the, the mean toxic Bitcoin maximalists on Twitter bash on Coinbase so much, that is why we do, we do not like uh, the actions of Brian Armstrong. But something else you mentioned in that tweet was ETH BTC. Um, so I've pulled up the, um, I might share my screen and pull up the chart of ETH BTC right now so the people can kind of, uh, you know, know what's going on. Um, because when I do pull up the chart of ETH BTC, we can kind of see it's not looking very pretty. It's, uh, down only, trending to zero. And just recently we had the merge. I think that was around, around here somewhere. Yeah. ETH got a little bit of a rally and, you know, the, the shitcoiners came out in force and they said, Oh, the flipping is back. We're going to flip Bitcoin in 2022. And all of a sudden it doesn't look so healthy. So. Yeah. Um, where, where do you think ETH BTC is going over the next uh, 12 to 24 months, Joe? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in the short term, like I think about Bitcoin, it's very hard to tell anything could happen. In the long term, I think this ratio is going to continue trending towards zero, basically. I mean, ETH BTC hasn't made a new all-time high since summer of 2017. And I think it looks like a lot of other altcoin charts where you have this one large peak uh, for ETH. And then after that, it's kind of, you know, down only uh, as time goes on. And so I think that the way that I like to think about altcoins is you have kind of two variables in relation to Bitcoin. You have a beta to Bitcoin and you have a theta to Bitcoin. And so the beta is, okay, some of these you know, a lot of people say, hey, it's going to be alt season. When the next bull run comes, it's going to be alt season. Altcoins are going to go up more than Bitcoin. And sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But it is sometimes true that, okay, some alts do have a higher beta relative to Bitcoin, at least some of the times, if you time the correct alt at the right time. But the critical component that I think a lot of people are missing when it comes to alts is there's this theta, which is just time decay. Like alts have typically have this one very good bull run for ETH. It was summer 2017. And then after that, at least the nominated in Bitcoin, it's kind of been slowly decaying over time and it hasn't been able to make a new all time high denominated in Bitcoin. And I think in the long run, you know, especially if you look at other, other alts, it's kind of the same story over and over again. They have this one great bull run and then the, uh, you know, the alt BTC pair peaks. And in the long run, it just kind of decays to zero. Yeah, that's how I see most assets uh, performing compared against Bitcoin, trending to zero. Um, even real estate, which we did touch on in our uh, previous chat, 
Now, speaking of our previous chat, Joe, um, I want to actually bring up the podcast we recorded with Kayvan uh, Devani back in, I think it was December 2021. That was the first time we met um, on a call. And I, I watched that one in preparation for today's RIP with you. And we kind of, you know, talked a lot about macro and the long-term debt cycle. At the time, in December 2021, we were both of the opinion that transit uh, inflation was not transitory and it would be higher for longer. And, you know, at the time, you know, inflation had only just really popped up. It had been, you know, here for a couple of months. And the consensus, even the consensus on Fintweet was um, inflation is transitory. It's going back down to zero. And that obviously hasn't transpired. So maybe we can do a little bit of a macro update, Joe. Um, how are you looking at the big picture right now? Yeah, totally. Um, I think, you know, the dollar and other fiat assets are designed to de- to be debased, right? Like today our money is debt. There aren't really dollars in the system. It's just people owe dollars to other people. It's corporations, it's governments, it's individuals, uh, it's everybody, right? And so the only way to keep this system going is to continue to create more dollars because if the amount of dollars in the system remains the same or it starts to shrink, then people begin to default. Uh, and one default is another person's default is another person's default. And we enter this deflationary spiral with debt-based money. Um, and that would just be catastrophic for the economy. And, and eventually the Fed and the government would come in and print a bunch more dollars and we'd be back to devaluing the dollar. And so I think very broadly speaking, we got to keep creating more debt. We got to keep creating more dollars. The dollar is designed to go to zero. It's going to probably get potentially even more volatile. I mean, we saw like 2020 was a very volatile year, March, 2020. We saw the massive inflation spike through 2021, 2022. And still now, I mean, year over year, CPI inflation is fairly high, but over the last, you know, three months or so, we have started to see like the last uh, CPI reading was an, uh, a deflationary reading is a negative uh, price change. And because of that, you know, markets have been hurting over the last 12 to 18 months and a lot of people are are kind of suggesting, hey, the Fed's about to pause at the very least, potentially pivot soon. And I think once that happens, we'll probably be back off to the races where Bitcoin, NASDAQ, a lot of dollar denominated assets are going to start performing very well again. And, you know, inflation will probably spike back up and, and we'll be back on another run. And the Fed will be forced to, you know, be like, hey, uh, the markets are a little out of control right now. We're creating way too many dollars in this system. Um, we need to raise interest rates again to try to rein in inflation. And so I think it's going to be a, a vol- continue to be a volatile decade. Um, but I also think that inflation will definitely remain high, at least like asset inflation, where people are going to be trying to scramble to invest their cash in assets that can preserve their purchasing power over time. Because I do think also like when people think about CPI inflation, um, and I'm sure I think you talked to Jeff Booth recently, you know, the world is deflationary, right? Like technology makes consumer goods and services cheaper and cheaper over time. And I don't think that's going to change. And so just because, you know, CPI inflation is low doesn't necessarily mean that if you're, you know, if your stocks are keeping up with CPI inflation, that means your stocks are, are a good investment. I think it's possible that we have, we could have a better savings technology that's not just going to keep up with CPI inflation because prices really should be going down as markets get more efficient, as businesses get more efficient, as technology gets more efficient. 
And so CPI inflation, I'm a little bit uncertain of what's going to happen, I guess. But I do think asset inflation will continue to happen, especially denominated in fiat currencies around the world. That's the biggest thing that most people miss with inflation. Uh, they, you know, they think inflation is normal and a good thing. It's not. Like Jeff Booth always says, we are getting more productive as a society. We are getting, we are building more machines that are making things more and more efficient. The price of goods and services should be dropping every single year. And, you know, the fact that it's not is all due to monetary debasement and uh, the fact that uh, the central bankers are just pumping the system full of liquidity. And that's a really great point. I did want to double click on that one. Um, I do have another macro question for you, Joe. I might save it up my sleeve for later. And I want to actually pivot into talking about the Bitcoin mining space once again, because you guys over at Blockware wrote a very, very interesting report talking about the Bitcoin energy gravity. So I'm going to share my screen and pull up a chart of uh, exactly what you're talking about in terms of energy gravity. And maybe you can just explain, you know, what is energy gravity and uh, what led you to write in this really thought provoking uh, report about it? Yeah, absolutely. So the energy gra- energy gravity is basically this metric that shows what is the dollar per kilowatt hour break even price for an, a median Bitcoin miner or Bitcoin ASIC at the moment. And so it's like, what are modern Bitcoin ASICs willing to pay for electricity to break even? And the idea behind this report is Bitcoin goes through these hype cycles where the price gets way overextended from the cost of production. And typically what happens when the price gets too far extended, eventually it gets way too far extended extended, and the price and this cost of production converge back towards each other. And so the general idea is, okay, when you look at something like energy gravity, where you can analyze, okay, what were the popular ASICs at that time? And then what were these ASICs earning for each kilowatt hour of energy they put into the ASIC? And typically it's it's fairly consistent. You can see, okay, if ASICs are willing to pay, you know, 40 cents per kilowatt hour, meaning they're basically willing to outbid almost every industrial and consumer user of electricity, that's typically a sign that, you know, the cost of production is way too far below the actual price of Bitcoin. And a lot of capital needs to flow into the mining industry instead of spot Bitcoin. And it's also likely that, you know, so much capital has flowed into spot Bitcoin recently, bidding the price up way too far that the price is probably going to come back towards the cost of production. And so it's just this idea that, hey, you know, mining and the block subsidy definitely still plays a role on the price of Bitcoin. For example, if the price of Bitcoin, we woke up tomorrow and the price of Bitcoin was at a million dollars per coin, the, you know, the mining industry would explode. There would be so much investment in these these ASICs and the mining infrastructure and the mining public equities. And these, you know, investments in these this hardware would be directly competing with spot Bitcoin. Because you could literally say, okay, I could buy a small fraction of a Bitcoin for a hundred thousand dollars or buy 0.1 Bitcoin for a hundred thousand dollars. Or I could buy this ASIC, which prints money right now. You know, today this ASIC might be selling for uh, you know, five thousand dollars. But if the uh you know if Bitcoin went to a million dollars a coin, that that ASIC that today is trading at five thousand dollars might be printing like five five hundred dollars a day. <laughs> so it's just kind of showing that like okay, like the price of Bitcoin can't go too far ahead of cost of production um, without the mining industry just growing rapidly. 
And, and that's the general idea is that mining, the mining industry and the price of Bitcoin kind of need to grow in tandem. And when the price gets too overheated, uh, it's typically a sign that, you know, Bitcoin's probably going to fall and, and, and crash soon. Yeah, this is really, this really, really was a fascinating report. Um, I never can like actually given the mining space this much thought. Um, but this example here in 2013, I'm, I'm going to zoom right in on the chart so the listeners can, or the viewers, I should say, can actually see what's going on here. Let me know if I'm understanding this one correctly, Joe. So when ASICs were invented in what looks like 2013, 2014, all of a sudden that makes mining far more efficient. And so what, what happens is, is when mining becomes a lot more efficient, uh, people will, instead of buying spot Bitcoin, they're going to sell their Bitcoin and invest that capital into buying the new ASICs that are very, very efficient and printing lots of money through mining Bitcoin. Is that the general gist of energy gravity? Yes, that's a general idea for sure. And I would even say it has to be the case that people are selling Bitcoin uh, to buy you know, ASICs or build out infrastructure. It just has to be people are are buying the the ASICs and the infrastructure instead of buying the Bitcoin, right? At a certain point when when the ASICs are just printing so much money and Bitcoin has been up, you know, 2000% or something in the last 12 months, it's probably a sign that like, hey, maybe the price is way overextended and maybe it doesn't make sense to deploy capital into Bitcoin itself. Maybe it makes sense to deploy capital into the mining industry because on paper, when Bitcoin is significantly overheated, it looks like these machines just print money to like an unprecedented level. And so, yeah, that's the general idea is that as the price of Bitcoin, you know, goes up exponentially more capital starts to flow into the mining industry or, or on paper, the mining industry looks great as long as the price of Bitcoin is that high. And it, the likely scenario after every time this has happened is that the price of Bitcoin comes down and a ton of capital flows into the mining industry. So it's kind of, the market becoming more efficient. I guess like another idea is to think of like if you can produce, you know, I don't know, strawberries in Cal or in California for one cent and in Nevada, you can buy them for, for one dollar, you know, eventually those price and the transportation costs are, are fairly minimal. Eventually those prices are kind of going to converge. There's going to be more people, you know, my, selling, producing strawberries and there's going to be, you know, more people trying to buy strawberries at cheaper prices. Uh, because there's more supply of strawberries. So the same idea with with Bitcoin mining. It's it's people are going to be f- rushing to to actually mining Bitcoin because you can produce a Bitcoin for I don't know a thousand dollars or or significantly below below the current price, and eventually the price and the cost of production inevitably will converge in the long run. It, it certainly does make a lot more sense when you actually spell it out like that. And I'd just never given it any thought. So like reading this report, it was uh, it was interesting for me. This is what I love about uh, interviewing people. It forces you to learn by reading all their stuff. So yeah, thanks for writing. This was a really interesting report. Again, listeners, links to the all of the reports Joe, Joe has written will be uh, in the description. Um, but while we're talking about mining, Joe, I want to ask you about uh, geopolitics and in particular hash wars. So for a long time, people have kind of speculated at one stage in the future, nation states may or may not actually engage in a hash war. And it'll be a global competition to accumulate as much hash rate on the Bitcoin network as possible as it becomes like a national security risk. 
Um, when do you think that we may be beginning to see the signs of hash wars beginning? Uh, do you think it's something that two that could be like two, three, four years away, or is it is this more like a multi-decade kind of uh, time frame before you expect nation states to enter uh, Bitcoin hash wars? It's a good question. I and I, to be honest, I don't have a strong opinion on this idea of what hash wars are what they will be or if they even will really exist. I do think a trend that we're going to continue to see or we're really going to start to see over the next, you know, decade or two is people in countries this will be countries like we've seen El Salvador's getting into the mining industry. People are going to be deploying lots and lots of capital into the mining industry because that's going to be the easiest way to get Bitcoin below its spot price, right? So like right now there's 18 something million or maybe there's 19 million bitcoin that have been mined into circulation right now a lot of the people that hold bitcoin today aren't selling at prices around 20k right most bitcoin is stuck in cold storage it's not moving it's if it's going to move the price is going to have to go multiples or magnitudes higher right and and so it's going to be really hard to, to get the 19 million bitcoin out of the hands of the people that hold bitcoin today but there's still 2 million Bitcoin left to be mined, um, which is a lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> and if the price of Bitcoin is, you know, millions of dollars, potentially, um, I think that's going to force a lot of capital to go into the to, to the mining industry, whether that's purchasing Bitcoin ASICs, purchasing public mining companies, whether it's countries getting into the mining industry or, or building out regulations that incentivize people to to build mining infrastructure in their country. I definitely think that's a trend that we're probably going to see a lot more of over the next decade as mining becomes a profitable business model as the world continues to monetize Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, the uh, More and more nation states uh, or, or just large entities could be forced to actually go out there and mine Bitcoin to accumulate it. In our RIP a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the psychopaths, uh, the Bitcoiners who just simply won't sell their Bitcoin for any price. And I think as you have entities like Michael Saylor enter the space, who right now is holding 150,000 Bitcoins, and in his own words, he's not selling for 100 years. As you see more and more of the Bitcoin supply being held up by those crazy laser-eyed Bitcoin psychopaths, so I think it does make a lot more sense that people will be forced to enter the mining game. Um, I've written down, I just wrote down a couple of stats on the top of my head. Um, I can't, I don't know if they're accurate or not, but is it something like 80 to 85% of the entire Bitcoin supply that's been mined hasn't moved in like five years or something crazy like that? I, I think, I think there's another stat as well. It's something like 65% of supply hasn't moved in the past one year. I, I don't know. Yeah, if they're no, accurate. I have seen the, the second stat where it's like 60 something percent of the total Bitcoin supply that circulates today has not moved in the last year, which is pretty crazy. I mean, most assets, when they fall a significant amount, you would expect, especially something like Bitcoin, if you're like outside the Bitcoin space, you would ex expect a lot of people that were in Bitcoin, quote unquote, are holding Bitcoin, the asset would would be selling it as as the price fell 80%. But that's kind of the exact opposite of what we've seen happen. A lot of the people that are still in Bitcoin or have been in Bitcoin just continue to hold through the volatility, um, which is, you know, fascinating sad that, you know, not only when Bitcoin goes up a lot, don't do it. A lot of people not really sell their Bitcoin, but 
especially when a lot of people, when, when Bitcoin goes down a lot, even more people don't want to sell their Bitcoin. And so the hands, uh, quote unquote, kind of get stronger as the price goes down. And as the price goes down, the people that understand Bitcoin and the strongest hands on the Bitcoin network, they're able to accumulate more Bitcoin for less dollars, right? That's the price going down. And so, yeah, I think it's fascinating that that this has happened. And I think it's going to continue to happen where a lot of people that hold Bitcoin aren't necessarily going to move or be selling their Bitcoin. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch it unfold. Uh, Joe, before we wrap this thing up, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. Uh, What were you doing before you found Bitcoin? And what are you doing now with Blockware Solutions? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I went, so I guess way back, I went to the University of Georgia undergrad and graduate school. In graduate school, I worked at a firm called Mimesis Capital, where we were basically a a family office that invested in a lot of early stage Bitcoin companies. The family office is based out of Taiwan. I was just a part-time analyst in graduate school. Um, We invested in companies like Unchained Capital, Swan Bitcoin, Foundation Devices, and a bunch of others. Um, Umbral uh, was one that I did when I was there. Um, So yeah, I worked there when I was in graduate school. When I graduated, I joined the uh, real world, the non-Bitcoin world for a little bit because I was like, uh, I love Bitcoin. It's very interesting. I think it's the money of the future, but I wanted to like have a, a real company name on my resume. So I joined- What year, uh, what year was grad, sorry to interrupt, what year was grad school for you, Joe? Uh, I graduated in 2021. Okay. Yep. Uh, so I graduated in 2021. I joined Ernst & Young as a technology consultant in their intelligent automation practice, did that. And then peak bull market, I was like, you know what? I can make more money in the Bitcoin space and I'm going to be a lot more passionate about what I do for Bitcoin uh, and 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 work more hours than I even did at EY. But I, it was just more passion. I felt like it was more important to help people understand what Bitcoin is and do research on Bitcoin. And so I joined Blockware over a year ago at this point. And yeah, it's been a wild ride, but it's been pretty fun. It has that sort of gravitational pull with the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And, uh, it does really drag you out of any other job that's, uh, you know, not focused on the Bitcoin space. Um, so you're managing the, the YouTube channel over there at Blockware. How long have you been doing that for now? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I guess I, I can talk about what I do at Blockware. So Blockware, we have, I, I think I mentioned Blockware what Blockware does, or did I mention Blockware, what Blockware does like in the first episode that we did? I can't remember. I don't think so. So give the listener a, ref- a refresher, even if you did. Perfect. Uh, yeah. So Blockware is a Bitcoin mining company. Uh, we're one of the largest ASIC brokerages in the US. So that means if you want to buy Bitcoin ASICs, uh, you should come to Blockware and we can help you procure them. Um, we have direct, direct relationship with Bitmain. Uh, so we can help you get like the cheapest prices that you can possibly get. Um, we do that. We also mine Bitcoin. So we have hosting facilities in Kentucky where we self-mine. And then we also host for clients of all sizes. It could be family offices, hedge funds, and it can also be, you know, small individuals. Um, so that's the core business of Blockware. Blockware has a smaller unit called Blockware Intelligence, which I lead. It's basically the research and marketing arm of Blockware where we have a weekly newsletter. We do a podcast. We also uh, put out long form research reports like the one that we discussed uh, with Riot platforms. And so we do a lot of research on on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and macro. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much what we do at Blockware. I love it. I would encourage the listener to go check out the podcast. Uh, you recently interviewed Michael Saylor and Lynn Alden. So you've got some great names on there. 
Uh, but Joe, I always like to end the podcast on a little bit of a fun note and a uh, in an area that maybe doesn't quite touch Bitcoin um, as much as many people believe. So first little rapid fire question I've got for you. Do you believe in aliens? Aliens. Uh, that's a good question. I go back and forth on this all the time. I don't know. I mean, I'd say like 50, 50 chance that we that they exist or they don't exist. Okay. Very balanced answer. And final little rapid fire question. Uh, do you think we're living in a simulation? Uh, it's another funny question or good question. <laughs> I mean, I believe that like there's a creator, but I, and so like, if you think that that's basically that we're living in a simulation or we're not living in a simulation, I don't know. That's how you interpret it. But yeah, that's what I would say to that question. They're a little bit of a non-Bitcoin questions. I always like to throw at people. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, where can I send the listeners online to find you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Joe Burnett on Twitter. My username is I at I, I, I capital. So three capital. Um, you can definitely check us out at blockwareintelligence.com. If you want to read some of the research reports that we talked about on this podcast, you can also see the newsletter and uh, our, the Blockware podcast. Um, other than that, if you want to actually like buy Bitcoin mining rigs, I work for Blockware Solutions and we can sell you Bitcoin mining rigs. So go to BlockwareSolutions.com if that's what you're interested in. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Uh, that's where you can find me. 100%. Um, links to all of those reports will be in the description of today's show. And if you haven't seen part one of our discussion with Joe, I highly recommend you go and check that one out. Last week, we were talking about why uh, Joe and the team at Blockware believe there is a possibility that Bitcoin could one day be worth $22 million a pop. So uh, definitely go and check out part one of our discussion as well. Joe, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Luke. There you have it, guys. That's part two of my discussion with Joe Burnett. Let me know in the comments down below what you thought of it. Is Bitcoin really untouchable like we both believe it is? And what do you think about NFTs and JPEGs on Bitcoin? That's a very controversial topic right now. So let me know in the comments down below your thoughts on both of those topics. If you enjoyed this one, make sure you slap a like on it and subscribe to the channel so you're notified for some upcoming interviews. If you made it this far into this chat, you're probably going to love the two videos I'm about to throw up on screen in a moment. And before we close this thing out, I want to quickly thank today's show sponsors. Swan Bitcoin, they're giving you guys $10 of free Bitcoin if you sign up uh, using the link in the description of today's video. Of course, once you got your free Bitcoin, make sure you pop it into a hardware wallet. Head on over and check out the Foundation Passport Hardware Wallet, which is one of the best Bitcoin-only hardware wallets there is in the space. We're thrilled to be partnering up with Foundation. They're going to give you guys $10 uh, off the Foundation Passport wallet if you use promo code BEAST. Uh, we actually also recently interviewed uh, Zach Herbert in a Twitter Spaces session maybe a couple of months ago now. So you can find that one on our Twitter. And finally, Bitcoin Miami 2023 is coming. If you guys want 10% off those Bitcoin Miami tickets, make sure you use promo code COINBEAST. Again, I'm going to be there. I'm pretty sure John and Justin, the other guys from CoinBeast, are going to be there as well. Come and meet us all. Come say good day. It's going to be a blast. Those massive conferences are always amazing. So make sure you uh, check out the Bitcoin Miami 2023 conference. Links to all of the show sponsors is in the description of this video. And with all that said, Guys, I hope you have a great day and I'll see you all in the next video.